Thank you for joining us for today's message. We are always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story you would like to share about how God is working in your life, please send us an email and let us know at mystory@jfc.org. Also, if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at jfc.org forward slash give and help us bring messages just like this one to you every week. Today's message is from our series, Famous Last Words. In this series, we will discuss the final words Jesus spoke while on the cross. Open your hearts for what God wants to speak to you today. talk to you today about famous last words. Um, as I was studying for the message, one of the things I did was then uh, Google famous last words just to see what people um, that would be uh, more well-known around us said for their last words. I found some funny ones. Uh, comedians probably had the most comical things to say as their last words. Uh, an old-fashioned, old-time comedian, Groucho Marx. Remember that guy right there? Groucho Marx's last words on his deathbed were, this is no way to live. <laughs> some like that and some don't. I get it. <laughs> on a tombstone, famous last words. The tombstone read, I told you I was sick. <laughs> I don't know if this is real or not. Um, I found it, but I couldn't confirm if it's real. It doesn't sound real to me. But I thought it was, um, it was interesting nonetheless. Uh, General George Custer, his final words, where did all these Indians come from? <laughs> How about the Terminator? You remember what his last words were? You guys are products of your <laughs> environment. Um, you know, my job sometime is to deal with people uh, in final moments. Uh, it's, it's part of my job. Um, you know, you would think that, um, that maybe I wouldn't like that part, but the truth of the matter is sometimes some of the most um, incredible ministry opportunities that I get come in the time before a person passes from this life to eternity. Uh, for most of us, and maybe it's a really good thing. Most of us never plan that. It happens quickly, and there's never the time to think, um, what should my final words be? But every once in a while, I deal with a person who knows it's coming, 
And when that happens, there's the chance to have a lot of conversations that we normally don't have. Uh, two of them I can think of. I had an aunt um, who was sort of a character in our family. She was a believer, and she had a disease, and it, um, she fought a battle for several years with it. But when the end finally came, um, our family had gathered around her for her final moments. And it was really interesting because in her, in her lucid moments, she would look at the people in the room and ask them, can you see the angels and do you hear them singing? And she would describe what she could see, what heaven looked like. And it was a powerful moment because we're standing there and we can't see what she can see. And she's describing it to us in vivid detail. And it was super powerful. There's probably not too many times that my family gets together that that conversation doesn't come back up. And it actually serves as an encouragement, believe it or not. Her death served as an encouragement to us of that in-between and what we're looking forward to. Maybe the most memorable one that I ever had, I had a young father who in a similar situation had a disease that he was facing and he tried everything in the world and nothing worked. And when he knew the end was coming, he sat me down and he had little children who he realized wouldn't remember him as they grew up. And he said, I want to do something so my kids remember me. And he said, I'd like to make a video that when they get older they can play. He said, what do you think about that? So I lost my dad. And there are things that I wish I would have known how my dad felt that I can never find out now. And I think to myself, how, how wonderful it would be to have something where he was telling me what he thought. So I encouraged the guy. I said, yeah, I think you should do this. I think you should speak to them like they're young adults or adults, if you were sitting across in a conversation, and tell them the things that you won't be able to say here in this life. Tell them those things so they can always take them with them. And so this guy sat down, and he wrote out his thoughts and his desires and his dreams, and he told his children, he told his wife what they meant to, them, what they meant to him. Um, he actually, for each of the kids, he described to them on the day they were born what it did in his heart. And told them how much he loved them. Told them how much he wished he could be there for them. And then he said these final words to them, I'll be waiting for you. I'll be waiting for you. What a powerful, powerful thing. Final words. They should probably be the most weighty words we ever speak. If you think about it, of all the things you say, and man, we have a lot of words in life. But when it came down to it, if you knew you only had two or three things left to say, would you want to say things that mattered? Yes. Would you want to say things that carried weight? Yes. Things that people would remember as profound, or at least the message that you wanted to say to somebody that you love very much. All right, take that thought, and let's go to Jesus' final moments. The whole reason that he's born and that he's come to the earth is to lay his life down for you and I. I heard a guy succinctly say it this way one time. Uh, he got what we deserved so we could have what he deserved. He got our death and we get his life. Amen. And if you just look at the last moments of Jesus on the earth, knowing that it's coming, he's fully aware. He even said, no one takes my life from me. I voluntarily lay it down right now. He knows that this is happening. So the final words he speaks, in my mind, we should pay attention to those words 
not more so than anything else he said, but with the idea that if these are his final words, there's probably a weight behind them of some message he wants to communicate as he gives up his life for us. And I realize there's a resurrection, and Jesus said many things after the resurrection, but it just seems to me those words that he spoke as he's laying down his life probably have a weight to them that we never consider. So our series over the next couple of weeks coming into Easter is just about his famous last words. Really, I'm going to concentrate on three things that he said. Today, we're going to talk about Father, forgive them. Next week, my God, my God, why? Do you ever ask God why? No one's ever asked God why. I ask God why. Sometimes in the heat of a battle, I ask God why. Jesus, at the most crushing moment of his life, says to the Father, why? I think he knew, but he just needed a place to express it to his Father. Last but not least, uh, his final words before he gave his life, uh, it is finished. It's a powerful thought there and a powerful concept. Again, here's all I'm trying to communicate to you. I think your final words, if you know that death is coming, your final words mean something. They're on purpose. They carry a weight. They have a, a gravitas to them that maybe other words don't have. And so I just want to consider those words um, in this series, and that's where we're going. Uh, the first words, Father, forgive them. You know, I was studying for the message, putting it together. I bet I've read that, I, I don't know, dozens of times, if not a hundred times, maybe more, I don't know. All the years in ministry and all the Easter's and all the times I've taught on what Jesus has done for, I don't know how many times I've read that verse, but I saw something this time that I never considered before. When Jesus is laying down his life, when they're actually pounding the spikes into his hands and his feet, nailing him to a cross, he's dying for us. Man, there's a lot of things he could have said under that moment, and Jesus speaks these words, Father, forgive them. Here's my question to you. Have you ever considered, why doesn't Jesus say, I forgive you? He's the one that's being nailed to the cross, not the Father, the Son. And yet Jesus speaks on behalf of the Father, Father, forgive them. So I studied that out a little bit, and here's my conclusion on this. Uh, Jesus is the representation of God on the earth. He is God in human form. And everything he's doing, here's what Jesus said of himself. I don't do anything and I don't say anything unless I've seen and heard the Father do it. He never acts as a rogue agent just doing what he wants to do. He represents the Father. And so here's what I think he's doing. He's the bridge between us and God. Our fellowship with God was broken because we went our own way and did our own thing. And God realized we couldn't help ourselves, so he sent Jesus to be the repairer of what was broken between us. And when a person believes in the work of Christ, man, it's the bridge back to God. Jesus said, there's no way to the Father except through me. And so what Jesus is doing is giving us the example. I'm not just simply doing something right here because I feel bad for you. On behalf of the Father, now he's able to forgive you. So I think what Jesus is saying is, Father, because of what I did, now you're able to forgive. So he's not just speaking to a bunch of soldiers that crucified him. He's speaking to all mankind on behalf of the Father. Father, now you can forgive them. I think it's a powerful concept. Here's a thought. Of all the words you could speak and of all the thoughts you could have in your final moments, why would you think about forgiveness? Here's my conclusion on that. Forgiveness must be such an important issue in our lives 
that Jesus would take the final three things he said to teach us about forgiveness. There must be such a powerful understanding of what forgiveness does for us, of how it sets us free, of how it helps us. Uh, it's, it's the very thing that Jesus wanted to leave in front of us that even when things, everything in life, a betrayal and a crucifixion, the option of forgiveness is there. So I thought I'd just talk about forgiveness a little bit today. If you've got a pen or a pencil or use the online notes or you just want to listen, that's fine. But here's the fill in the blank for the first one. I want to talk real quickly about the poison of bitterness. The poison of bitterness. Let me read a scripture to you from the book of Hebrews. The Apostle Paul um, is writing this to a group of Jewish believers 2,000 years ago, and he's dealing with the issue um, of bitterness and forgiveness, things that, I, I, I try to say this every week, we read the Bible as though it was so far removed uh, from where we live today, like we live in such a hectic, uh, modern um, place and time that's so far removed from, people's needs, no matter when they lived on the earth, people's needs are people, today we have the same needs they had then, we have the need to be loved, we have the need to be cared for. We have the need to eat. We have the need to be clothed, the need to be comforted. People have needs, and it doesn't change with what society they live in, and they struggle with the same issues we struggle, and one of those issues they struggle with was forgiveness. Stuff had happened to them that they're holding on to, and it's killing them, and so Paul deals with the issue of forgiveness, and he writes it this way. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God in and of itself. That's a powerful sentence. And then he says this. Watch out. That no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you. And here's why. Because it ends up corrupting many people. So what they have going on is that they have people in their church whose stuff has happened to. They're being persecuted. That's one of the things. And they're very bitter and angry and upset about it. And they're hating people. And it's killing them. It's not hurting the ones who are doing it to them. It's hurting them. And so Paul just writes, listen, you've got to watch out for this. Because this thing is a bitter root that grows up in your life gets a hold of you and it messes with you. The poison root of bitterness. Poison comes camouflaged. The problem that I think the Bible, Bible describes to us when it comes to the idea of bitterness and it being poisonous is that um, it doesn't come with a skull and crossbones. It doesn't come with red flashing lights. There's no neon sign that says, do not eat this. When bitterness comes our way, when offense comes our way, uh, when those things happen to us, it feels right at the time to hate somebody. It feels good. The problem is it gets inside of you like a poison. Here's what I know about poison. Some poison can kill you instantly, and some is slow acting, and it kills you over the long term. Not all poison do you take into yourself and you're dead instantly. Some poison you begin to eat and it slowly works to where in the long term it destroys you. And that's what he's describing when it comes to bitterness and unforgiveness. It's not a poison that kills you tomorrow. It kills you over the long term. But you take it into yourself initially because it feels so good to do it. It feels right to be angry and to hate and to be bitter to not forgive somebody. Poison comes camouflaged. Let me... Let me show you this from the Bible. I'm going to go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the very first sin that was ever committed. Adam and Eve 
are in the perfect environment. They've been given limited instructions on what they have to do. They're not given 50 things that they have to do. There's only given one instruction. Here's the one instruction that Adam and Eve have been given. Of every tree in the garden, you can freely eat except for the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you eat it, you will surely you'll die. Wouldn't you think that would be enough to keep them away from that tree? Here's just a comparison. The other tree in the garden that they could have eaten from was the tree of life. God didn't tell them not to eat. They could have gone to that tree instantly and enjoyed eternal life. But the Bible says as soon as God turned his back and left, what do you think they did? Let's go find it. <laughs> Off they run to that tree. And the Bible's using a metaphor here, the idea of good and evil. And they find the tempter there, the enemy. Satan is there to tempt them. And I want you just to see the wording of how he tempted them. God clearly tells them, do not do this because if you do it, it'll kill you. That should be enough. But here's how the enemy worked with the woman and then with the man. When the woman saw, so notice, man, she looks at it. She doesn't consider what God said. She now just simply uses her eyes. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, here's the words, was, what's the word? Was for food and to the eye and also, okay, look at me real quick. God said, if you do this, it'll kill you. But when she looked at it, here's the three things she saw. It was good, pleasing, and desirable. Yes or no, if you see something good, pleasing, and desirable, you never think it's going to kill you. And here's the problem with this kind of poison. When, you, when something happens to us, when someone betrays us, when someone hurts us, when so, it doesn't matter little or big. When it happens to us, we have the choice, do I take this in or do I let this go? And here's what God says, if you take this in, it'll kill you. That should be enough. But the problem is at the moment, it looks good, pleasing, and desirable to bring that anger into ourselves, to hate someone, to get revenge, to want to stop and just say never again. And if you look at it with your eyes, it seems good, pleasing, and desirable, but the problem is it's poison when you take it into yourself. And Paul describes it this way. It's a little seed, but it grows into a great big root. And once it does that, it'll corrupt your life. So look at me real quick. This is not what I think, what I know. Not what I think, what I know. I've done this now for more than 30 years. You can't imagine how many good people who love God who sit in our church week after week wanting to serve God, but they have a root of bitterness in their life from something that happened to them that they can't let go, and they're stuck in that thing that happened to them. They're stuck. And so they'll say things like, Pastor, pray for me. I just can't seem to get by this. And I get it. And then the pastor gets up and does a message like this, and people are like, Pastor, if you just knew what I had experienced, you wouldn't be so quick to say that. Okay. But on the other hand, if you knew what I experienced and what I'd been through, maybe you wouldn't be so quick to think that I'm quick. <laughs> maybe you'd think, maybe the guy knows something. Maybe he's realized something. This is funny. When we look at that scripture in Genesis that that original sin appeared to be good, pleasing, and desirable. Let, let me show you a twin scripture 
that has to do with God's will for your life, and I want you to see how God's will appears in our life. I just want to draw a contrast, so just go with me for a second. This is from the book of Romans, all the way to the New Testament now. And now the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers. These are not Jewish believers. These are Gentile believers. And they're struggling uh, with the issue of having a renewed mind. They're born again, man. They know Jesus, but they can't get past the old mindset. So Paul's writing to them how to move on in their life. And so he writes these words, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And then he tells them how to be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then look at this right here. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Now, I want you to see the word for God's will. God's will is good, pleasing, and Do you remember what the original sin looked like to the woman? Good, pleasing, and desirable. The word perfect and desirable are interchangeable. Here's all I'm trying to say to you. This thing is disguised where it seems like when you're confronted with temptation, especially the one to hate people and to be bitter and to be angry and to be filled with that, it looks like, hey, this could even be God's will. One of them will produce life in you and one of them will produce death in you and you can't go over the way that it looks. You have to go over what God said about it. That makes sense? The original lie from the enemy to mankind is that if you listen to me, I'll make your life good, pleasing, and desirable. Here's God. If you listen to me, I'll make your life good, pleasing, and desirable. Which one is telling the truth? Three of us. <laughs> Some are like, I don't know for sure. The poison of bitterness. Um, probably my position, um, the title pastor, creates a thought in people's life, like uh, his, his prayers for me might weigh more with God. So I have people all the time come up and say, hey, pray for me. Nothing wrong with that. But hear what I'm saying one more time. People tend to think, because my title has pastor in it, that my prayers might, might go to the first of the line, <laughs> right? They're on the top of the end basket. Your prayers are just as powerful as my prayers are before God. God doesn't go, well, he's a pastor, so his prayers. Your prayers are just as powerful. So, but I get it. And so people will come up and say, hey, would you pray for me? Standing in that foyer, three, four years ago, I had a man walk up to me after a service, man, he, and he, he's walking like this. He's bent over. I could tell he's obviously in pain. And he walks up to me like this. He's an older man. And uh, he just says, hey, pastor, I need you to pray for me. What's wrong? He said, about six weeks ago, I woke up, and he said, I got out of bed, and I couldn't straighten up, and my back hurts so bad, and it gets worse every day. And I've gone to countless doctors now, and they can't figure out what's wrong with me. And he said, I just, would you just pray for me? Now, I try to diagnose real quick. How many people have prayed for you? First time, multiple. He says, man, I've had my small group pray for me. I've had other pastors pray for me. He said, I don't know what to do. I've prayed for me. It just doesn't seem to change, and I can't figure out what's wrong. Okay. So I went and got this little uh, vial of oil, like the book of James says. If there's any sick amongst you, call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint them with oil. Pray the prayer of faith, and the sick will recover. So I went and got this little vial of oil, and I just anointed him, and I began to pray. Normal prayer, nothing spectacular. But while I'm praying... I get this 
clear picture in my head. Now, just listen to this for a second. So the guy's bent over, and when I close my eyes and I pray for him, I see a picture of this ugly demonic thing standing on his shoulders with a spear. And it's jammed straight down into his shoulders. Now, how do I tell the guy that? Hey, man, there's something on your shoulders. Watch out. I mean, what do you, you know. So I'm like, first I don't even, what is that? What did I eat for dinner last night that's causing this to happen? But the more I prayed, the more clear it becomes. And I can see this thing standing on his shoulders. And written on the spear is a word. And it was an offense. And the thing is on his shoulders, jammed it straight down inside of him, and the guy's bent over. And, he, and the guy doesn't know that this thing is there. So while I'm praying for him, I see this picture, and the more I pray, the more clear it becomes. But when I get done, I don't know what to say to him. And we get done, and nothing, the guy's just still standing there like this, and I say amen, and he says thanks, and he walks away like this. And so I took a chance, and I just said, hey, come back. And I said, I know this sounds really funny, but I see this picture and this thing is standing on your shoulders with a spear right through your shoulders. And on the spear, it says this word. Does that mean anything to you? And the dude turns 15 shades of white while I'm standing there. How did you know? What do I know? I don't have a clue what I know. I'm just telling you this picture. He said about six weeks ago, this happened to me. And I can't get beyond it. And I hate this person. And I said, listen, man, you want to be free? Here's the price of freedom. You need to let them go because this spear is stuck in you. You've given the enemy the right to pierce you. And if you want to be free, you've got to let this go. God is my witness. Here's what the guy said. I don't think I can. And he walks away like this. A week later, he said, I'm ready to let it go. That's a smart guy right there. Because how many people would stay like this? Because they'd rather hold on to the thing than be free. If freedom was a choice, would you take it? Well, it's really easy to sit here and go, yes, but do you know how many people hold on to that thing? All right, I'm not saying that every unforgiveness, bitterness, and act of offense gives the devil a right to do something like that to you. This is obviously a specialized issue. <laughs> but in the same way, do you know how many people get bound up and stuck at that place where that thing happened? Here's what I have learned. Find a person who is full of offense, and it doesn't matter how long you've been separated from them, as soon as you come back together, within 30 seconds to a minute, they'll start talking about that offense again. That's their paradigm that they live their life through right there. Now, look at me. I'm your pastor. I mean, no harm to you, no foul to you. My name's John, and I love you. God sent me here to help you. So, I mean, you know what? I don't want to give you one more thing to be offended about. Jesus died to set us free, it was for freedom. Freedom's sake that he set us free. That's what the Bible says. He wants you to be free. But the enemy is so skillful at presenting things to us that look good, pleasing, and desirable at the time. But once we take them in, they kill us. 
They flat out kill us. By the way, you're going to heaven because the work of Jesus gets you to heaven. This isn't a heaven and hell issue, but it is this. You'll feel like you're in hell while you live on earth. And that's not why Jesus died for you, man. He died to set you free. Um, I'm going to be out of time. Um, I was reading this week. This is just my own, my own theology. Is it okay if I have my own theology? I don't know necessarily if you would consider it orthodox or not. So let me just tell you what I, what I think. Um, Luke chapter 5, just as a reminder, here's Luke chapter 5 in case you don't know and maybe, maybe you forgot. Luke chapter 5, Jesus tells the story. Uh, well, Luke tells the story about Jesus um, and a miracle that he did. And the miracle happens with a guy who's paralyzed. So the Bible says there's, there's a paralytic who wants Jesus to heal him, but he can't walk and he has no way to get there. And he has four friends who pick him up on his mat and are going to carry him to Jesus. Those are the kind of friends you need in life. Because I've had the other kind. The best ones are the ones that help you get to Jesus. Trust me on this. They'll do whatever it takes to help you get to Jesus. All right, so these four friends carry this paralytic on a mat to get to Jesus. And when they get to the house where Jesus is teaching at, there's so many people they can't get inside. Listen to what these guys do. They crawl up on the roof. They pull back the thatch and they lower the guy down in front of Jesus. It'd be like me teaching right now and down from the ceiling comes a guy in front of all of you who's like, me first. Help. I mean, it would get your attention. All right, so here's what you would think. That Jesus would just reach out and heal the guy and Jesus does the most remarkable thing. In front of the Pharisees, for their benefit, here's what Jesus says. Um, Son, I forgive you of your sins. And the Pharisees are thinking, not saying out loud, thinking, who does this guy think he is to forgive people their sins? And Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he speaks out loud to them. Who do I think I am? (laughs) I'm the very son of God. And he says, so that you'll know that the son has authority to forgive sins, watch this. And he reaches out and heals the man, and he gets up and walks. Powerful story, but it can be read very disconnected, and I want to just throw this out to you. Is it possible that Jesus is teaching in in this story that forgiveness and healing go hand in hand with each other? Let me try it over here on this side, right here. Is it possible... That Jesus is showing us an example that healing and forgiveness walk hand in hand with each other. That when forgiveness happens, healing can then happen. Here's what we pray for all the time. God, I need the miracle, but we don't want to go through the forgiveness issue. What if God is saying they're hand in hand? I can't do the first or the second until I do the first. So if you had a choice today, would you choose life or death? Let me give you the second one real quick. I, I just got to close up here. Um, so the first one, first one is the poison of bitterness. The second one, let me just talk about the option of living. The option of living. 
There's more than one choice in a situation when we're offended. We don't have to take it in. We don't have to hate. We don't have to be paralyzed. We don't have to let that thing mark us for the rest of our life. The thing that happened to us does not have to become the defining moment of who we are in the future. Uh, Acts 26, I'll just read this to you real quick. Um, Open their eyes. Open their eyes. Here, say that with me. Open their eyes. So it's something that has to be seen. It's not just automatic. God has to reveal this to a person. Open their eyes, Father. And if you open their eyes, here's what can happen. They can turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and then they will receive forgiveness for their sins, and be given a place amongst God's people who are set apart by faith. When God opens your eyes, you can turn from darkness to light, from Satan to God. The result is the forgiveness of sin, and we move into a place of God's grace in our lives. Do you see that in that scripture right there? It's a very powerful scripture. So let, let me just talk to you about the option of living. The worst thing about being stuck is you're stuck. It's really deep. So say it one more time. The worst thing about being stuck is that you're stuck. A couple years ago, this month, we had a pretty big snowstorm. I mean, it was like two, two feet, two and a half feet. And of course, it's in the middle of that storm that we run out of something at home that we need. And Chris is like, run to the store. So I don't want to go to the store. It's snowing out there. Let's go to the store. And I had this ratty pair of sweats on and my slippers. What kind of dummy goes out in a snowstorm in slippers? Have you ever done that? You can't keep the snow out of your slippers. It's impossible. But I was just like, man, I don't want to have to go do this, but I'll do it. So I jump in the car, and I'm going to King Soups. And right before I get there, at a stoplight, a lady comes cruising by, trying to make a left-hand turn in front of me, and the car just slides right into the snowbank right in front of me. Whammo, and she's stuck. And so here, my first conversation is, uh, God, I have my sweats on and my slippers. Somebody else is going to have to help this woman out of that snowbank. And the longer the light didn't turn, the more, all right, I'll do it. So by the time I get pulled over and then make my way over to her, another guy had stopped, and he's already at her window. And when I walk up, here's his conversation. He's giving her driving lessons. Here's what I... Even if you have a four-wheel drive, you can't go that fast in the snow. You, you can't come up to a stoplight like this and expect to be able to make the turn. And while he's talking, I can see her turning redder and redder and redder. And this guy can't read the situation. And I can tot- I'm like, I know what she's thinking. You're about 30 seconds away from the worst. <laughs> Tongue lash you ever got. So I just sized this up real quick, and here's what I tell the guy. I just walk up and I said, hey, help me push her out. So we just walk around the front, we push her out, she gets unstuck, and off she doesn't even stop. She just keeps going. Here's all I would say to you. The best thing you can do when a person is stuck is not to give them instructions of how not to get stuck. Nobody wants that. We hate that, and we hate the people who do that to us. You know what we want? We want to get unstuck. So that if you had a choice, look at me. If you had a choice this morning to be stuck or unstuck, you tell me that you want to be unstuck. What if the price is letting go? It's 
People hate to be stuck. <laughs> but sometimes they detest more having to let it go. And they stay stuck. Here's the lie we believe when it comes to forgiveness. If I forgive somebody, they'll get away with it. This is the lie. If I forgive somebody, they'll get away with it. Let me tell you what the truth is. The truth is, you'll get away from it. When it's all said and done, God will have his way. And when he takes care of a situation, trust me, friend, trust me. He doesn't forget anything. The only thing is when we ask him to forgive us, he forgets about that. By the way, I'll just cover this. Let me give you the three myths about forgiveness. Three myths. If you wait until you feel like forgiving, you'll never forgive. I never woke up one morning and thought, today's the day. I feel magnanimous today. I feel generous today. You never, forgiveness is not an emotion. And so if you're waiting to feel that in your heart before you can do it, you're making a tragic mistake. You'll stay stuck in that place for the rest of your life. Forgiveness is a choice, not an emotion. And by the way, it's not a one-time choice. Because you can choose to forgive one day, and it can come back on you six months later. Have you learned, have you lived long enough to... So if you wait until you feel like forgiving, you never will. Here's the second myth. Forgiving is forgetting. Listen to me on this. I said this last night, and a person still walked up, didn't hear a word I said about this. I'm going to say it slow. Forgiving is not forgetting. God can forgive and forget. He's God. You're not God. Forgiving and forgetting are two different issues. Forgiving is the choice I'm going to let this go. I've got to get it out of my life. I may not get justice right now, but I'm going to give this to God. God can do what he needs to do with it. But I've got to live. That doesn't mean you forget. It doesn't mean that. Forgiving, here's the third myth. Forgiving is for cowards. A wimp lets stuff go. A wuss doesn't follow through. The most courageous thing you may ever do in your life is be willing to let someone go. To make the choice to forgive. It's a courageous act on your part, trust me. If it were easy, everyone would do it. If it were simple and it didn't take a backbone to do it, most people could. It's easier not to forgive than it is to forgive. But it's a myth. It takes a very courageous person to forgive someone. I'll just finish with the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. I talked about forgiving isn't forgetting, but let me talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. These are two issues too. When you forgive someone, it doesn't mean you're reconciled with someone. Until a person repents, you can't be reconciled with them. So you can forgive somebody whether they ever say to you what I did was wrong. You can choose to forgive, but you're not reconciled until the person says what I did was wrong now you can be reconciled with them. This is how the gospel works. Jesus died for every one of us and for all of our sin. But we're reconciled with him when we say to him, God, forgive me of my sin. So he died one time to forgive everybody, but it's not applied until we say, God, 
forgive me. That's reconciliation. By the way, the work of Jesus is not simply forgiving, it's the work of reconciliation. What he wants is to be and have you reconciled with the Father. So then we come to the end of the message, and what an appropriate time in the season of Easter to ask you, are you reconciled with the Father? Do you want to know how God feels about you? He sent Jesus, and Jesus stands like this. Here I am. Come to me. But people can stand just like this to God. And Jesus did all of this work, but it's a two-party issue, not a one-party issue. He's willing to forgive and has. Do you want to be reconciled? Does that make sense? That's the gospel. He moved first. He's not waiting for you to do something first and then he'll act. He moved first on our behalf. And now ask, do you want to be reconciled? Salvation comes when a person says, God, I need to be reconciled. Forgive me and be merciful to me. So Jesus, I just want to take a moment to act on that word right there. Folks, listen. As much as I um, would love for you to make this your church home, as much as I hope we get to do this together um, till Jesus returns, the truth of the matter is, uh, for some of you, maybe this is the one and only time you'll be at our church. Maybe for some it'll be a long period of time. Here's the common denominator. Whether you're one time or a long time a part of this church, here's, here's the common denominator. Are you reconciled to God? Going to church is no guarantee of salvation. Having a Bible doesn't mean you're a Christian. Listening to a message doesn't grant you anything. There's a decision that each of us has to make and that we'll answer to God for, and that decision is, do you want to be reconciled? Now, God on his behalf loves you so much and took the responsibility on himself that he sent his one and only son to take our place. He got what we deserved so that we can have what he deserves. He took our death, we get his life, but it is a two-party issue. Do you want that? God doesn't force it on you. He doesn't cram it down your throat. Do you want that? And so I'll just ask that question today. Are you reconciled to the Father through Jesus? Do you need God's mercy? Do you need his grace? Do you need to be forgiven? Do you want his life? I ask this question, if the choice of life and death were left up to you, what would you choose? I think that everyone in this room, right thinking, would say, I want life, okay? Here's life. Be reconciled to the Father. I won't embarrass you. I'm not going to make you stand up. I won't point you out. But I do want you to respond right now to something. And if you say, Pastor, when you pray, remember me because I need to be reconciled to the Father today. I need His grace. I need His mercy. If you've never said to God, reconcile me, help me, and you want to do that, then I want you to respond right now. If that's you and you just say, Pastor, pray for me, I just want you to raise your hand right now. Just pray for me today, John. So I need that life. Yep, 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 yep. You can put them right back down. 
your decision is not reformation. It's not you're saying I'm going to be good or I'm going to join church. Those are all great things. But just so that we're clear, your decision today is just simply, God, be merciful to me. I need to be reconciled to you. I need your forgiveness. And I want to come to you right now with belief that you sent Jesus to make it possible. There's no right or wrong way to pray that. It's just from your heart simply to say to God, help me, be merciful to me. God, I believe. Father, for every person who right now says I need that, do what you do really well and bring life to us. Take away our death and bring life. Father, don't let the enemy come in and hijack this, corrupt this, sidetrack this. Let it stay just about what it is. People today recognizing I have a great need for God. Father, thank you for being merciful to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us. And I pray it in your name. Amen. And amen. Thanks for listening to me.